Welcome back to Pandanomics, a series exploring the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on Canadians and on the economy. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. Today, we're coming back to one of everyone's favorite topics, which is, of course, real estate. If you're paying any attention at all to the news or to your local real estate listings, you're aware that housing markets are on fire, and not just in the usual places we think of, of Toronto and Vancouver, but really almost all across the country and small towns and big cities. Uh, and I guess with the spring uh, real estate and lending season starting to kick into gear now, I can't imagine that's going to change drastically. I think uh, that situation will continue. We have two great guests to talk about this today. Uh, John Webster is head of real estate secured lending at Scotiabank. And Farah Omran is an economist with Scotiabank's economics team. And part of her job is to monitor and analyze the real estate market. Welcome to Panadomics, John and Farah. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. So we're just over a year into the pandemic and the economy has taken a hit in all kinds of uh, all kinds of different ways that people are well aware of and yet the housing market has been pretty much in overdrive almost throughout that big increases in prices and demand right across the country uh, Farah, can i ask you to just give us sort of the broad strokes of the most recent numbers that you have at your disposal um, absolutely. Like you, like you just said, the housing market has the, kind of been doing its own thing during the pandemic, really ramping up, showing strength uh, during an economic recession, which is quite unusual. Obviously, that is due to multiple factors that I'm sure we're going to get to later. But the latest data that we have from the Canadian Real Estate Association shows that sales were up almost 7% in February compared to the previous month. Although at the same time, listings were up by around 15%, the pre-existing tightness in the market uh, still brought about a 3.3% increase in the home price index. So even though the, the listings went up by 15% in February, they were down by 13% in January. And actually, that month we recorded the, uh, the tightest sales to new listing ratio. It was around 91, the highest on record. So the increase in listing uh, last month only brought it down to the second highest level on record of uh, 84%. So um, compared to February of last year, uh, the last month before COVID lockdowns began, um, the home price index went up by uh, over 17%, which is the steepest increase since uh, April 2017 and was uh, mostly driven by single family homes, uh, which increased by 22% compared to, for example, apartments that only went up by 4.2%. Okay, so we'll get into a lot of the details of this, but part of it, I guess, is uh, is a supply issue. You talked about a, uh, sorry, tell me again, the ratio that you, that you talked about of new listings to... A sales to new listing ratio. So that's really a supply to demand ratio, and it really... Um, it just shows how tight the market is, uh, how t- how low supply is. And January, it was a remarkable 91%. We've never seen that before. And so even though it dropped to 84%, it sounds like a big drop. It's still just the second highest since the 91% that we recorded in January. Wow. So, John, uh, you're a close observer of all of these numbers as well. What's your take on the boom? You've I'm sure you've been watching it closely over the course of the last year. Like, what is, what's driving this from your perspective? Well, to pick up on Farah's last comment, Steve, think of it this way. Um, what she's really saying in sales to new listings means that it's a seller's market. 
and there just isn't enough housing stock out there for people to meet the demand. So going into the pandemic, we had a lot of pent-up demand, particularly in the major urban markets. So you read about how hot the market was in Vancouver first and then Toronto. So when the pandemic hit, of course, everyone wondered what will be the consequences of that, particularly not just for the broader economy, but in terms of housing specifically, would people be able uh, to purchase houses? Because obviously the restrictions, the physical restrictions meant you couldn't view the home and conveyancing became very difficult in terms of visits to your lawyer, etc. So any of that face-to-face contact was at risk. So people, I think, predicted that this would have a very negative impact on that housing demand. But what occurred was the opposite. So those major urban markets have become tighter. So if you take a step back, what was driving the market before the pandemic? Low interest rates, ultra low historical interest rates drive. That's a huge driver of housing demand, but also household formation. And by that, the biggest factor in Canada is new Canadians, immigration numbers. They're at record highs. So we were going into a period where it had increased from 300,000 a year to 350,000 a year. Indeed, the federal ambition coming out of the pandemic is to go as high as 400,000 a year. And that really impacts the urban markets more so than the rest of the market in Canada because the new Canadians come to Toronto, they come to Vancouver, they come to Montreal in disproportionate numbers. So you had these effects contributing to the demand for housing and then the tightening supply. And that just continued very strangely throughout the pandemic. The industry was able to set up virtual showings and find a way to do electronic signatures. So conveyancing took place and people in the pandemic, interestingly enough, became much more aware of their dwelling space because of those physical limitations. And they wanted to have a single family home as opposed to a condo. They wanted to have a backyard. They wanted to have more space. They wanted to consider, given working conditions that we were all working remotely, uh, I can live further afield. I can live in a, in a smaller community and not worry about the commute. And that's all practical. So all these factors contributed to increased demand at a time when there was limited supply. So regulators historically had looked at the demand side and said, you know, we really should tighten lending conditions to dampen down this market. But that didn't dampen down the market. Interest rates drive it. Household formation drives it. And then, strangely enough, the one of the curious byproducts of the pandemic was people became much more anxious to buy not only a home, but more home or a single family home. If you take a step back 10 years, it used to be two to one, the production of new homes that were single family compared to condos and boxes in the sky. Well, that flipped over in the last 10 years. Many more condominiums were sold almost two to one because there was demand for it, but also because the price point was about half of a single family dwelling. So people thought, oh, the condo market's really gonna be negatively affected. But what's really happened is single family dwellings have had price appreciation at record levels and condominiums just didn't keep pace in terms of the acceleration of price levels. But with the exception of Calgary, um, they didn't come down and that was mostly due to a second or third oil shock. So it's a very dynamic housing market with limited supply. It's a seller's market. There 
There aren't enough houses available to meet that demand. Well, so many different factors involved there, even just going back to the, to the immigration question, which absolutely the government had been ramping up the numbers of newcomers that we've been accepting, which was certainly affected over the course of the last year. Those numbers have gone down. Uh, and in spite of that, and I guess for all the reasons that you just talked about, those numbers, the, the demand uh, kept increasing, which suggests once the immigration numbers get back up to what they were, it doesn't look like the demand's going to slow down anytime soon. Farah, could you maybe, John, talked a little bit about people looking further afield, wanting more space, not being as concerned about a commute as they once were. Are you able to talk about any of the delving into the numbers a little bit outside of the major urban centers and how uh, how the housing boom has also impacted markets that we might not have expected it to? Absolutely. I, I'll start by saying that this particular trend that we're observing during uh, the pandemic has been really uh, a broad base. It's observable all, all across the country. Prices are going up everywhere without exception. You know, compared to a year ago, sales were up almost everywhere in February, except for eight markets. And in these eight markets, supply was just really extremely limited. But still, one can observe some trends that we just discussed about, you know, what this crisis has done is, is really just speed up already existing trends, as, as crises usually do. In this case, it's, it's out migration from central cities to suburbs. So uh, all of the factors that we discussed just now, the preference for more space, you can work from home, you don't need to work, uh, drive to work. People are leaving downtown to suburbs, exurbs, what some would call cottage country, which is where we're seeing really most of the price increase. Taking Toronto, for example, housing conditions obviously were tight across the GTA, but in February, the 15% increase that we saw in the area in, in home prices was mostly driven by over 20% increases in suburbs surrounding the GTA and in bigger single detached houses. Whether this trend will persist really depends on how working arrangements are gonna uh, develop after the pandemic and after vaccination. I personally don't see home uh, like office space to be permanently dead. So I don't see the strength to be permanent. Uh, at least partially, it will be reversed in the medium to long term as people will have to go back to the offices eventually to an extent. Without a doubt, though, Ontario is the hottest market. You have smaller cities where prices went up by um, almost 30% since the start of the pandemic. Uh, also Atlantic Canada, um, BC. And um, as I said, since it's an all country kind of trend, Every market is hot, but Ontario is the hottest at the um, at the current rate of sales. Ontario would run out of home inventories in less than a month, which is um, a very small duration. And it's the shorter one we have on record. The Canadian Mortgage uh, and Housing Corporation actually just this past week included Toronto, Ottawa and Halifax uh, in the list of cities that are at the highest vulnerability level. And in that list, we already had uh, Moncton and, and Hamilton. So these cities are identified by the agency as, as more most overheated and overvalued and vulnerable to a price correction. Okay. I, we'll come back to sort of that, that longer term look in a couple of minutes. But John, it does... 
what Farah was talking about um, reflect your experience? And I talked something Farah said about people moving further afield. And you also mentioned what was interesting, people wanting more house, but maybe in terms of like renovation in their own space, their existing space. First off is, so the flight to the suburbs thing that people have been talking about probably for eight months or 10 months now during the during the pandemic, uh, in your experience is a real thing. Uh, you're, you're seeing that in terms of where, where the movement is. I think that that uh, markets outside the greater Toronto area, the greater Vancouver area um, had already experienced some of that pre-pandemic. So there was an expression in the industry that realtors would use, drive till you qualify. So looking for a lower price point, um, they were moving further afield. And I think what the pandemic did, uh, given the work circumstances, it accelerated that. And I think what I've observed um, during the pandemic is for secondary properties, recreational properties as well, if you went to uh, what Farah pointed out, uh, what I would describe as cottage country, um, and talk to realtors there. They've never had an experience like that in their working lifetime. I was uh, recall last fall during the pandemic, driving through cottage country, through routes that I was familiar with, and just seeing this, the listing signs with sold, sold, sold uh, constantly. And that phenomenon has kept up, obviously, uh, people will tell you they're not building more waterfront, but that need to be out in the open air uh, became much more intensified because of the pandemic. And those have become incredibly hot markets uh, and are particularly hot right now. Uh, even rural acreage is being sold uh, that used to sit, you know, time, time listed for a property is a good indicator of the demand. And there's been some very, very crazy activity in, in houses. You hear about these bully bids and people putting in higher offers and not waiting for uh, the time that the selling agent has requested. And it's become um, a little bit of gamesmanship. People going in without even having their financing qualified, uh, just submitting offers. So it's that kind of dynamic is very unusual. But from my point of view, mortgage market demand follows the housing demand. And we're very fortunate at Scotia. We have a product called STEP that allows you to have multiple products, great flexibility uh, when purchasing a home and allows you to use that rising equity in your home um, to uh, and, uh, access either through a card or without a line of credit, secured line of credit. So you can do those backyard renovations, which have become incredibly important right now in this marketplace. So, you know, as a lender, obviously I'm concerned that everything is stable and that we're prudent, uh, but looking at it from the point of view of the customer and the consumer, never there, has, there hasn't been a better time um, to purchase a home in terms of the financing portion. Prices are accelerating, and that's a concern in terms of affordability. But if you look at your mortgage payment um, with low interest rates, people forget it's an amortized product. So you're $1,200, $1,400 a month. The largest proportion of that is retiring principal. So you're building equity every month uh, when interest rates are this low. So that's very encouraging. So the other driver in terms of household demand are millennials that are looking to get in, first-time buyers. So if you look at what their wishes are right now, and particularly reinforced during the pandemic, the data suggests 
that they really feel the need to step into the market right now. So that's also contributing. So you've got people seeking out a secondary product, a property rather, is a in cottage country. You've got millennials who are first timers saying, you know, I want to buy my first home. I don't want to put all this money into rent that I could be building equity. And all of these things have happened at once during the pandemic, which is, it's very curious, you know, to have record growth like we've had in our mortgage business uh, during a time that we're facing one of the biggest crises in our lifetimes. Yeah. And, you know, between all those factors you talked about, millennials seeking a place, people wanting perhaps a second home outside of the city, incredibly low interest rates. What about the supply side of all of that? Like Farah talked about, uh, you know, the vulnerability of certain cities. What's your view on the supply side of things, John? Is that is that where where the movement has to happen? It's a great question. And and you've hit the nail um on the proverbial head. Uh, the supply side is the most challenging. Um, it requires amendments to the way that we do land use planning and intensification, and that involves the three levels of government. So you'd have to have municipalities respond, the provinces have to respond, the feds have to respond. They really need a coordinated effort to address supply. It, you know, if you look at the land use planning rules, in our province, home province of Ontario, for example, they haven't had a major amendment in more than a quarter of a century. So there was always, there's so much to balance in that in terms of historically, we looked at expansion through tract housing by going out into agricultural areas and saying, we're going to allow intensification there. But the challenges there is you have to have the infrastructure, you have to have sewer, you have to have water, and that isn't available anymore. And plus the charges that the municipalities level are higher and higher and higher at a time when material costs are higher and higher and higher. So municipalities don't want to raise their taxes on your existing homes, but they put all these levies on development. So it makes it very expensive for new homes. And then it takes a long, long time uh, to get land developed and then to get the homes built. That's why you saw the, the, the intensification and the utilization of condominium and intensification within those cities that had infrastructure to use that as a way to meet the housing uh, supply problem. But that created a whole other set of problems in terms of urban infrastructure, subways, streetcars, buses, particularly. And across all of this is our concern for the environment our concern for the healthy planet. And so all this development comes at a cost. So balancing all this is hard. When you look at BC, for example, in Vancouver, people were saying we've got an affordability crisis here going back many years. But look at it. Realistically, the footprint is very small. You've got the ocean on one side, the mountains on the other. You had a number of uh, foreign buyers that found Vancouver the most attractive place, not just in Canada, but around the world comparable to going to buy in Sydney, comparable to going to buy in any other attractive markets. And Vancouver saw that first because they could only spread so far in the lower mainland. So you've got physical limitations, you've got rules to consider, and you've got to be very creative about the way in which you decide you're going to house your population. And unfortunately, in this country, we've waited far, far too long to address it. 
Yeah, you you start to see you're starting to see some uh, some places, and I think it's a little bit the case in Toronto with a bit more openness to densification in sort of downtown areas, or I'm in the east end of Toronto, you know. But that's all sort of around the condo market. Essentially, you're talking about building condos, not so much uh, single family homes, and. And, you know, where we have these kind of circular discussions, people want single family homes, so are we going to keep building condos? And then eventually, maybe the short term rental issue will come back, come back in, uh, in Toronto as well. But it's a problem for renters as much as it is for owners, because what our solution was, was to say, you know, we have rent control um, and you look at the merits of that. But from a development point of view, what happened was there was no new rental housing stock being built for over a quarter of a century. And so condo investors who purchased all those new units became the supply for renters. Uh, and then what happened in the downtown course, for example, during the pandemic, when there weren't foreign students coming or when there wasn't that flow of immigration, as you mentioned, because the borders were closed, then all of a sudden there were vacancies that there had never been before. So it's not just a home ownership issue, it's a housing issue. It's, it's about affordable housing, it's about rental stock, and it's of course about home ownership as well. Uh, Farah on that sort of policy question. I think as John mentioned earlier, the government had tried to control it from a, a cost of a cost of borrowing perspective and controlling it on that side. Uh, do you think there are policy approaches that I suppose the federal, maybe the federal government should take? Although, as you both said, it all it's complicated because it's all three levels of government really that are involved. Absolutely. My answer to that would very much mirror what John just said and what you just said. Uh, Government intervention is definitely needed to deal with the main issue in the market today, which is the lack of supply. And as, again, we already alluded to, the problem is that the federal government can't do much about this specific problem because usually the interventions at the federal level are focused on curbing demand by lowering affordability, which is not really what we need and what we're discussing. Of course, the Fed, to give them some credit, they have the national housing strategy, you know, to increase affordable housing. They have the rapid housing initiative that came out of the pandemic. But the main blockage is at the municipal level where the municipal governments are responsible for zoning laws and fees and other aspects that impact supply. Another room for intervention, though, is also in the uh, blind bidding market, which, again, John did did discuss. Uh, buyers really don't know the value of the house or the competing bids that they're up against. And then you end up with these bidding wars that drive the house prices uh, significantly over their real value. You, you have some houses in Toronto selling anywhere from 100000 to 700000 over asking price. So having some uh, transparency in the bidding system is useful. But again, that's not really within the purview of the federal government. It's at the provincial level. And those those data points on indicative value have ava- are available. And digitization has made it even more available to all of us uh, on your mobile device or on your laptop or on your tablet. The bigger, the biggest blockage there has been the local real estate boards not wanting that data to be shared, right? And so there's been the um, a, a two a push uh, between government saying we need more transparency, and and there are coming to you soon. There will be. Um, 
automated systems that allow you as the purchaser to get some indicative value of your home and the home you might want to purchase. But that's what's created a, a bit of a problem in terms of the transparency for the bidders. And that that certainly would assist a little bit more rational behavior in the marketplace. But the intermediaries, the financial intermediaries involved in their industry associations have pushed back uh, against the sharing of that information, which they feel is proprietary. Right. That's a good segue into what I think will probably be our last question. I think we could carry on with this for another hour easily, but we uh, we won't do that. So I'll just ask you my last question, John. Given all of those circumstances that you that you talk about, what what is your advice to uh, to home buyers, homeowners now as we're heading into you know the, the crazy buying season, crazier buying season? What's your advice to people looking to buy a house? Well, I think given the economic recovery and what's happening happening cyclically, you're going to see continued strong demand. So there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of money on deposit from the, the pandemic. People are going to continue to want to buy a house or buy more house. So I think that demand will continue. The From my perspective, you know, what's important to remember, even with these low interest rates, the Bank of Canada has a qualifying rate that's currently at 4.79, and all mortgages are required to be at the higher of the Bank of Canada qualifying rate of 479, or your contract rate, so say you're paying 169 or 299 plus 200 basis points. So for all through the pandemic, the mortgages were being underwritten at two or 300 basis points higher. So it gives borrowers currently an interest rate cushion. So if you're gonna go look now, my advice would be go see a home financing advisor, walk yourself through the pre-qualification, make sure you understand what you can afford and the fact that you have an interest rate cushion, but also factor in the other expenses that none of us think about, a furnace, a roof, or things that can go wrong. So get a qualified advisor to assist you, not just with the financing, but for your planning, particularly if you're a first time home buyer and you've never been through that experience, so that you can go into this whole crazy process right now with some confidence that you're as well armed as you can be. And that's why I'm excited at Scotiabank because of our step product, it gives you the flexibility, you know, you can go long and short with your mortgage. And by that, I mean, you can take a step and you can say, I want to have a certain component that's variable if I want to maintain that because the prime lending rate is lower than the fixed rate, though not by a whole lot. And I can mix that with a fixed com uh, component as well. And I can also, as I build equity in my home, I can have the money readily available to purchase the stuff for my great new backyard. So say I want to put up a, a, a pool or expand. As you build that equity, you can spend it and spend it responsibly. So I think that the demand will continue, but you have to be better armed than ever to go into that marketplace and compete. And I guess if you're looking at buying a home in the suburbs, you probably want to also consider the possibility that your employer might eventually want you to come back to work. So build in some commuting time down the road at some yeah. point. Farah, any last prognostications? What's this all going to look like a year from now? I would say it's really hard in the current environment to anticipate where the housing market will be a year, two, three from now. But as long as we have this pent up demand and as long as we have this record low supply, prices will continue to increase, reflecting fundamentals. Um, of course, it is clear now that some of the increases is a kind of 
diverging away from fundamental and real value. But that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily, you know, crash in a month from now. It just means that there is more sensitivity to an adverse economic shock um, in the future if it happens. Yeah. And I guess people also have been calling for, you know, a significant housing market correction in Canada for a very long time, and it just never seems to happen. So maybe things will just carry on <laughs> as they are indefinitely. Uh, look, I want to thank um, both of you for joining me today. That was really interesting. As I said, we could have gone on quite some time, but uh, I really appreciate you both coming today. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. I've been speaking with John Webster, head of real estate secured lending at Scotiabank, and Farah Omran, an economist with Scotiabank's economics team. Thanks for listening to Pandanomics. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, or Spotify. See you soon. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.